This past October, when I was getting ready to spend two weeks teaching in Mexico City, I really wasn't worried about the trip. People would say to me as I was getting ready, oh, be careful down there. I've heard there's a lot of crime in Mexico City. And I thought, well, I'm hanging out with Mexican Christians. We're hardly going to be getting into trouble or trying to contact the cartels. You know, that, 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 that didn't worry me. Besides, I'm from St. Louis. If I want to get murdered, I can do that in less than half an hour around here. I mean, that's easy. You know, I don't have to go to Mexico City for that kind of thing. It really wasn't risky at all. I mean, the traffic down there is the worst part. It, uh, I mean, you think you've seen insane stuff on the roads around here. Oh, it's nothing. Oh, it's nothing. I mean, some of these other places, man, they make the worst drivers in St. Louis look like they are... Uh, just model traffic citizens. Even eating tacos on the literal street tacos late at night. I was safe. Walking through the very downtown of Mexico City wasn't a problem. Got to walk through La Merced, which is a little market that simply has to be experienced to be believed. I mean, we have nothing like it here. I'm still not sure how I didn't get lost in there. None of it was unsafe. It's not like when I was in Istanbul a few months ago where I got left behind in Asia by the rest of the group. You know, they were off back to Europe and I was still standing on the Asia side. And it's a great headline. The story itself is kind of boring. But uh, as I got ready for that Mexico trip, it occurred to me that, you know, I keep all the financial records and that type of thing. So... If by chance I didn't make it back, whether due to an airline issue or some other thing, Lindsay might need all that information. So on a USB stick that I left on our kitchen table, I had all of my passwords, copies of our financial stuff, anything that she would need to be able to function, to be able to pick up and go from that. And on that... I also left a letter from my wife. You know, if she ended up reading that, it would be because I didn't come home. I deleted all of it. You know, I came home and I wiped that thing. So you're not going to break into my house, go onto my kitchen table and find, ooh, here's all Phil's passwords. Nope, gone. But I'll tell you, writing that letter and preparing those files, that was sobering. Forced me to do some thinking. What would you write to your loved ones if you knew it might well be the last thing from you that they'd ever receive? What would you say to them? What would you include? With that in your mind, we come to the book of 2 Timothy, which is, as near as we can tell, the last letter that we have that Paul wrote before his execution. In the 60s, not the 1960s, I mean the 60s, Persecution of Christians was ramping up from the highest levels in the Roman Empire. Emperor Nero, who reigned from 54 to 68, was becoming increasingly unhinged. Nowadays, we know that all their plumbing was lead for you know, fresh water, so that explains a lot. But he was blaming the fire that happened in Rome in the year 64 on Christians. It might have been an accident. Some historians of the time thought maybe Nero had a hand in it. He was trying to clear some land in Rome. But more and more, he was blaming things on Christians, using them as a convenient scapegoat. 
And Paul had likely stood before Nero in the year 62. Remember at the end of the book of Acts, he's in prison under house arrest awaiting his audience with the emperor. That emperor would be Nero. And, in about, and that was about 62. We think that he was acquitted. His accusers didn't show up. Well, he went from he was released, went from there, planted more churches, went around traveling, and then sometime later he would be arrested again. This arrest would end with Paul's execution. He would show up before Nero again, who would look at him and say, "What? You again?" Likely when this letter was written, it was between the year 66 and 68. Paul is writing to Timothy. Surprise, surprise. Timothy had gone with Paul on his second missionary journey. He was a younger guy. He grew up with Christian influences. We learned that his mother and grandmother were Christians. That was a rare example of someone who had that kind of influences in their family. He would serve the church in Ephesus, and we think that's where he was when he received this letter. This letter is very nearly a farewell. It's possible that Timothy was able to visit Paul after receiving this. He, t- Paul had said, I'd like, I'd like you to come visit me. But if he didn't make it to Rome in time, this would be the last message he received. And it really has the feel of an older mentor and a friend giving what might be his final advice. It's a very simple theme to this letter. He's, Paul is writing to his young friend Timothy and telling him about perse- perseverance and persistence as he serves the Lord. So much of the later New Testament is on that theme. Remain faithful. And it's necessary. Life was hard for Christians and it was getting harder. The one thing you knew if you were a Christian in the Roman Empire in the mid-60s, it was rough. And it was going to get way worse. If you belong to Christ, you needed to hear this message. And this letter, even though it's very personal, written to one guy, not necessarily the entire church, but one guy, we, we still have it today because that message is still necessary for us, where Paul tells us to persist in God's work. We live, friends, in a world that is hostile to God, in a culture that no longer has room for Christ, but we still must persist in doing God's work. We're all around us. If you actually try to follow Jesus, as revealed in the Scriptures, you will not find many friends. was much the same back then. And Paul gives Timothy two important reasons to persist. Gives a lot of other advice, but these two reasons really show why we also can keep going in a culture that no longer loves Jesus. As he opens this letter, Paul points out Timothy's personal history and how he has been readied for this work that he's doing. He says, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. 
As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me, in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. He says to Timothy, you can keep going because you have been prepared for this. And to us also, we find out we can keep going. We can persist, persist in serving Christ because we have been prepared for this. Serving God isn't easy, but we are not left without resources that aid us in his service. God doesn't say, all right, you belong to me now. Good luck with that, buster. You're on your own. No, he says, I have prepared you. I have given you what you need. We're not looking around and saying, well, how can we keep going God says, the tools you need are at hand. Paul's thinking back, as we would expect in this time. He's thinking back to the times they'd been together, of Timothy's family who instilled this faith in him. He says, I remember your mother, your grandmother. The faith they had is the faith you have, Timmy. Parents, if you think that your faith heritage is meaningless, you couldn't be more wrong. Your example lived out before your children is vital. If you think about all the time children spend at church, folks, we've got them for at most three hours a week, usually less. What about VBS? What about the, you know, Yeah, we've got that, but I tell you what, this afternoon your kids are going to be with you more than they were with us all week. Just this afternoon. Your example says so much more than we can say. We can have the very best youth program and children's program. Look, I think really highly of Preston and Daniel. They're great guys. They, I know the burden they carry for the children around here. I guarantee you, friends, they have problems sleeping at night because they're worried about your kids and your grandkids. Don't ever think that they don't care. But the very best they can bring pales before the example that you set at home. 
Now, your example isn't going to be foolproof, but foolproof, but you have the ability to influence your children in ways no church can match. It's not going to guarantee that they're going to follow Christ all their days. But I tell you what, you can have them at church every time the doors are unlocked. And if you don't follow Christ at home, what we do here, it's not going to matter. Might as well throw paper wads at a battleship for all the good it'll do. Your example means so much more than a lifetime of junior church and church camp. When you are with your children at home, remember, friends, that time matters. You are drawing them to Christ in every moment. And with this faith that Timothy has received from his mother, from his grandmother, he can lead forth boldly. Now, I'll admit, I didn't say this in first service, but I'll admit, this is kind of interesting to me. talks about his mother, his grandmother. doesn't say anything about his dad or his granddad. We don't know if they were Christian. Maybe, maybe not. I know sometimes, ladies, your husbands aren't really enthusiastic about the things of Christ. I know that pains you. Your example still matters. You can plant that seed even if you don't get a whole lot of help. And in Timothy, that seed had grown. He believed. He served. And he, Paul says, Timothy, you can lead forth boldly. He says, go forth boldly. And there's always that temptation to be timid, to hold back. You know, I'm kind of an introvert. You know, I'm, you know, really? Preacher's an introvert? You wouldn't know it. Hey, I fake extroversion really well. I mean, there's a lot of preachers across this land. We are introverts at heart, and we deserve an Oscar for our performance on Sunday morning because we get home, and we have peopled all weekend people for the day. And you introverts know exactly what I mean when I say you have peopled enough. The extroverts are sitting there like, people's not even a verb. (laughs) You silly, outgoing person. Get home, time to recharge, to relax. But we introverts were always wondering, you know, what, how am I going to be received? Am I really wanted here? Should I stick my neck out? And I, I tell you, this is something that uh, uh, we introverts need to hear, that, friends, God doesn't equip us to hold back. He equips us to go forth. That fear, it's Satan messing with our minds, friends. Oh, you believe in Satan, preacher? You believe there's the devil? Oh, absolutely. Jesus believed in him. I believe he's out there, and I believe he will plant in our minds whatever lies he can to keep us from being bold for Christ. And God forgive us, sometimes we believe him. But in God's spirit, we can go forth boldly. We can go out, we can talk about them, we can introduce them to people. Paul said, you know, you go do this 
Serving Christ, though, is, it's probably going to lead to suffering. Paul was experiencing suffering right then. He'd experienced suffering time and again through his ministry. But he said, we don't have to be ashamed. The world may disapprove of us standing for Christ and serving Christ. I know there's a lot of Christians out there who think that if we follow Jesus closely enough, the world will love us and listen. Friends, I think they're wrong. Why do I think they're wrong? Because Jesus says they're wrong. He says, the world hated me, it'll hate you. The more righteous we are, the more the world will hate us. Why? Because we don't belong to the world. We belong to Christ. Yet, their disapproval doesn't really matter. I mean, you look around in this world, you see the types of things this world approves. Is that the kind of opinion that we want to take seriously? Might as well take fashion advice from somebody wearing a plaid shirt and polka dot shorts. I mean, it's, you know, any, you, you can tell by looking that they got nothing to say. Hey, I love cargo shorts. I'm a dude, I love cargo shorts. Yeah, don't take your fashion advice from me. Sometimes you can tell somebody's not worth listening to. And friends, when it comes to righteousness, when it comes to the things of God, don't listen to the world. They will lead us away from him. No, instead we are saved, we are forgiven, we can stand proudly knowing we are serving our heavenly master. And verse 12's got a great encouragement here. It is a verse that I know you've heard. We even have a song about it. And it's hard for me to read this verse because in the song they do weird things with the pronunciation. I know whom I have believed. Who thought that was a good idea to put the emphasis on that syllable? I mean, that's not where it belongs. Friends, we do know whom we believe in. We are convinced that he can keep us. Until that day he has set, he will see us through. He is the creator of the universe, the God of all things, the Lord of lords. And he will not let us fall. No, we have the truth. We know what he has said. Now we follow him. We don't stumble blindly. No, we take our place in a long line that runs back to the apostles and to Christ himself. We follow their example. Their witness. Some years back, when Pink Floyd said, oh, you're just another brick in the wall. I imagine they thought that was an insult. Oh, teacher, you're just another brick in the wall. You're nothing special. But I tell you, the world looks at us, say, oh, you're just another brick in the wall. You're just another one of these people just like the preachers, the church members, the apostles, the prophets. You're just another brick in that wall. And can we say, how cool is that? 
How great that is that we are keeping their witness. That we are following their example. That we are sticking to the faithfulness that they have shown. Even unto death. The world will look at us and say, you're just another brick in that wall keeping us from having fun. We'll say, no, we are the servants of the Most High. And we are doing as He asks. Dare we trade the truth of Christ and the trouble that comes with it for the lies of the world? Oh yeah, it'll be easier if we give in. It'll be easier if we lessen the truth of Christ. It will be easier if we start ripping pages out of this Bible. But dare we do that and give up the life ahead of us? Give up the God that has saved us? Of course not. We have been prepared for this. We've been warned of this. It may be hard now, but friends, we know what lies ahead of us. This letter continues, and you get into chapter 4, and Paul starts wrapping up his thoughts. He's still giving some practical advice, but it really starts feeling like he's passing the baton. Timothy, I've done what I can do. Now it's your turn to go on without me. He tells Timothy the near future is going to have problems, but in the long term, our future is assured. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only to me, but to all, also to all who have loved his appearing. He's telling Timothy, look, there's going to be problems, there's going to be issues, but we can also persist because we have been promised. God has given us promises. God has told us what's coming, and if we keep going, we know we will receive them. He says, Timothy, keep doing the work of ministry because it's necessary. That verse 2 is one that we use for ministry students all the time. You know, young preachers always identify pretty strongly with Timothy. I understand it. But it's not just those who are in paid ministry who need to be ready who need to be able to talk about Christ. Peter himself later on will write and say, we've got to be ready to give an answer. And Paul tells Timothy, you reprove, rebuke, exhort, encourage. We Christians need that. God's word does both. We need correction. We need encouragement. 
I tell you, not one of us in here is so perfect that we cannot find places where we must improve. As we follow Christ and as we read the scriptures, we find the word of God critiquing us, sometimes all the way down to our core. The personality traits that have been baked into us from childhood, God says those have got to change. If you read the Bible and you never once see yourself being critiqued, being told you need to change, being recognizing that the way I have been is not how I should be, you're either not reading the Bible, you're skipping over a lot of stuff you need to read, or you're lying to yourself. Friends, when we are confronted with the Word of God, we are also confronted by the Word of God. And it points out, here's where we need to change. But at the same time, we also find that we are not so strong that we need an encouraging Word. The Word of God also soothes us. Reminds us that this is worth it. Friends, not one of us is so strong we can do without encouragement. That's why I always harp on encouragement. It's why I keep saying, find somebody to encourage. They need it. They may look strong. They may seem like they, the person that ha- they're the one that has it all together. And behind that facade, friends, they are probably crumbling. That's all of us. We need that encouragement. We need it from each other. We need it from the Word. And when we truly see the Word, when we truly study the Word, we get both of it. We get that critiquing, and then we get that encouraging. And we need it because, friends, there is a day of judgment. That's not a happy truth, but it is a truth. Not every truth is something we want to hear Friends, a day of judgment is coming. God has set a date and said, after this, there will be no more. History will end on this day. The universe will stop. There will be no more tomorrows. And there will be judgment. That's going to happen. I don't know when. If anybody tells you they know when, they are a liar. Because Jesus said even he didn't know the date. And I, I tell you, you know, theologically, if somebody says they know more than Jesus, you need to be suspicious of that person. I will guarantee you I do not know more than Jesus. I will guarantee you you don't know more than Jesus. So when Jesus says something, I think we can take that to the bank. We don't know the date, but we know that it is. We know that it is coming. It could be this afternoon. It could be 2,000 years from now. We don't know, but it's coming. And on that day, friends, we are going to face a righteous and holy creator of the universe. And when we are ushered into the throne room 
Those who are in Christ, friends, we can look ahead confident in our forgiveness and in God's mercy. But if we lose track of Christ, if we turn from him, we place ourselves under that judgment once again. It is a frightful thing, a fearful thing to face a holy God without the forgiveness of a merciful Christ. Can you imagine walking into the throne room in heaven and seeing God and finally for the first time ever being confronted with our utter sinfulness, never having contemplated it, and knowing it's too late to do anything about it. But if we're in Christ, we walk into the, into the throne room of God, and he's there, and we look to his right hand, and there's Jesus, his son, sitting there, and he's looking at us and just kind of winking. Hey, buddy. And he leans over and says, Dad! This one's with me. My blood covers their sins. They're forgiven. This is one of your children come home. That's going to be a different experience. Imagine how wonderful that will be. But serving God here now isn't easy. Oftentimes it's not easy because of those we serve. When I was teaching ministers' life and work at St. Louis Christian College, that was the class. I always loved that class because it was the class where I would talk to the preaching students about what it was actually like. Here's what you're going to deal with. You're going to sit in meetings. Here's how you deal with them. You're going to make visits with people. Here's how you do it. And sometimes I'd tell them stories about things that I had experienced in ministry. It's a great class to teach if you're in active ministry because it's like, look, here's not what, I'm de- what I dealt with 20 years ago. It's here's what I'm dealing with this week. It was always kind of informal. But I would have to warn them. Not about the world. I'd have to warn them about the people sitting in their pews. I wish I was kidding. Whether you're in paid ministry or maybe not, there's a lot of people who serve God who don't get a paycheck for it. Each and every one who tries to serve Christ will carry emotional scars from those who have professed to follow Jesus. Friends, I have had to pull metaphorical knives out of my back from people who were friends of my family since my parents were kids. And Paul says, there's going to be a time when you deal with people who they don't want to hear the truth of God. They're going to be in your church. He's not talking about people outside the church. He's talking about people inside the church who reject the word of God. A friend of mine in Bible college He's now, uh, uh, he preaches in Indiana. He's a, we call him bivocational. He's got a day job and he preaches on the weekends. He, he, he would always joke about this sermon that he had in his head called, You Know the Ones. Focused on passages like this. You know, oh, the people who, they'll, they'll reject this, the, the teachings of Christ. They'll go after whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will, they will ignore the truth. To hear what sounds good, you know the ones. And then he said, 
<laughs> you are the ones. Probably a great sermon, very satisfying to preach, but I said, you probably want to have the U-Haul loaded and ready to go and gassed up if you, if you lay that one down. Friends, it happened then, it happens today. People who belong to Christ start to forget that fact. And rather than listening to the truth of the word and allowing it to critique them and encourage them, they shut it out because they'd rather hear something else. It's discouraging, but Paul says we can't spend our energy focusing on them. He says, instead, you keep your head, dude. You focus on your ministry. You don't get off track worrying about that. Don't get discouraged about it. Just know there will be. And keep on keeping on. That's a hard thing to deal with. It's discouraging. It hurts. Like I said, each and every one of us, if you have been in Christ for any length of time whatsoever, you have not just seen it happen. You've probably had somebody hurt you. Someone who knew better. But Paul says, it's going to happen. Because not everybody who professes Christ sticks with Christ. Remember, the one who betrayed Jesus, friends, was one of his 12 disciples, one of his closest friends. It happened to him. It'll happen to us. But we keep on keeping on. And then Paul says, I can tell the end is drawing near. He talks about himself being poured out as a drink offering. Now that's poetic. The drink offering was a type of Jewish sacrifice that would be poured out on the ground. We see it a few times in Scripture. He's completely spent. He had always known he would suffer in following Christ. He was not destined for an easy life as he served the Lord when he met the Lord Jesus on that road to Damascus. And then he was sitting in a house in Damascus, blinded, waiting for Ananias to come and preach to him. And God said to Ananias, Ananias, go talk to Saul. He said, wait a minute. I've heard about Saul. He's come to beat us, to throw us into jail. You want me to go and show up at his house like, you know, Uber eats a Christian straight to his doorstep? I mean, you think you like persecuting Christians? Here you go, Saul. I've just shown up so you can get started. You want me to do that, God? And God says, oh, ho, ho, this ain't the same Saul that left Jerusalem. And then he says, I have shown him what he must suffer for my sake. And then all of a sudden, Ananias is like, Oh, he's going to suffer for your sake? I'm on it. <laughs> it's always how that seemed to me. <laughs> Paul knew his ministry would be one of suffering. He was jailed. He was beaten. He was stoned and left for dead. And now he's jailed again, awaiting a beheading. But he knows what is ahead, a reward from God. Friends, if you want to persist in serving God, you keep eternity at the forefront of your mind. It's real easy to get discouraged and bogged down in the day-to-day -day trouble when even our fellow Christians are after us. 
when we're taking wounds, even from people we have known and we have trusted. How do we rise above that? You keep your eyes on eternity. You remember where you're headed. You remember this is all temporary. Instead of looking around and getting discouraged, look up and know what awaits us. That's what Paul was doing. He knew how this one was going to end. I don't know if he was eyeballing that Roman soldier next to him, seeing the sword and thinking, I hope it's sharp so it hurts less. If when they finally marched him out, if he looked at the soldier and said, you know, make sure you give it a good swing. I don't want you to have to saw the head off. But I think more likely he knew, I'm going home soon. He said, my reward awaits. It's not just my reward, it's the reward that awaits all who are in Christ. Friends, God has promised this to us. His spirit is our deposit. That day is going to come. We have a reward ahead of us. We're not just in this for the trouble and the pain in the here and the now. We are in this for absolute paradise when we look upon the face of our God in person forevermore. It's not going to be like this forever. Oh, praise the Lord indeed. No, we keep serving because we know our eternity. It is with him, incorruptible, waiting for that set day. No persecution can tarnish it. No mocking can damage it. Nothing this world can do will rip it from our grasp so long as we keep on following Christ. If we are in him, we will be with him. Period. Full stop. Our service to Christ, friends, sometimes it's a great joy. It brings fulfillment and happiness. Sometimes it feels like a slog that only gives us trouble. I'm not here to paint a rosy picture. I am here to give you the truth. Sometimes it's a sad truth. But friends, ultimately it's a happy truth. Because we keep on. We persist in his work because he's prepared us. He's prepared us well. We have these examples in the faith. We have brothers and sisters in the faith. We have his spirit. We have his word to guide us. We can keep on because we know the truth. And part of that truth, friends, is he has promised us eternity. We know where this ends. No matter what troubles us here and now, we keep on. No matter what this world may do, we keep on. Our eternity is secure. In him, so are we. Stand with me. Father, we thank you for what you've done for us. We praise you for the promises that you've given us. Lord, help keep our eyes fixed on the eternity that you have for us. Help us to look past the trouble, the suffering, the discouragements. Lord, keep our eyes fixed on you and on the future, the eternity that you have for us. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.